Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation 5, 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All of you, I'm sure, are aware uh, that there's been another school shooting this past week, and I always like to pray before I begin preaching, and today I would like to pray for our country as part of that as we turn to the Word of God to look for guidance. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that you would have mercy on us. Lord, I praise you that your mercy is more, that as great as our sins are, your mercy is greater. Father, we as individuals and also as a nation as, and as a world, Lord, we need your mercy. I pray for the, the grieving, for the families of those who have died, for those who are injured, for the school, for the teachers, the principal, all of the people who are deeply affected by this tragedy, who will be returning to a building where something terrible happened. Lord, I ask that you would have mercy on them, and I pray that you would help us as a people to look to you. I pray that you would teach us to number our days. I pray that you would teach us to fear you, and I pray that you would teach us to look to our Redeemer, the greatest expression of your love and mercy. And I ask that you would give us faith and hope. Lord, I pray now that you would teach us about our Redeemer through your word. Pray that you would open our eyes, help me to preach faithfully and well, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are continuing our sermon in Exodus, 
And we'll be looking at Exodus chapters 28 and 29. And the whole book of Hebrews, all 13 chapters, really teaches that Jesus is our great high priest. And the Apostle Peter, in the first letter that he writes, says that you and I, as believers, are also priests. Which means that if you do not know what the Bible says about priests, you will not know who Jesus is, and you will not know what God expects you to be. And so that is why we are continuing our series in Exodus today, so that we can understand the work of Christ, and so that we can understand the calling we have as God's people. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, that amazing story that Exodus tells, he declared himself to be their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they swore to be his people, to keep his law and to observe all of his commandments. So he made promises to them, they made promises to him. And by those promises, God committed to living among his people, to being their God and to literally dwell in their nation in the tabernacle. And I've said that the whole book of Exodus, chapter 1 all the way through 40, shows that God's people are redeemed for worship. So God shows us in this book what our freedom in Christ is really for. He leads people from slavery and bondage to worship the Lord. And that worship is clearly shown in Exodus to have two components, two parts. The first is a place, and the second is a people. And the place we looked at last week, and that's the tabernacle. That's where God's glory dwelled in Israel. And the people is the priesthood. Both of these made worship possible. And notice with me, in chapter 29, there's a few verses at the end that I think set the context for this sermon very well. So look at chapter 29, verses 43 through 46. God says to his people, as he has described the tabernacle, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified or made holy by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Last week, I talked about how God's presence was guarded by a courtyard, by an altar, by a tent, and then by a veil. And how only the priests could minister inside the tabernacle and approach God's glory. And only the high priest could go past the veil into the Holy of Holies where God's throne was and the glory of his presence was said to be. Now, because Jesus has offered himself, the place of worship is unimportant. I preached it last week, not the passage of Scripture, 
The passage of Scripture still helps us know what Jesus did for us as a high priest, and it still helps us know what a priestly ministry is. But now, we no longer have to go to a specific place to worship the Lord. When we read Exodus and see the description of a tabernacle, there's no need for us to build one. That's not how we approach God anymore. And so the place helps us understand priestly ministry, but it's far less important for our day-to-day worship of the Lord. We don't approach God through a tabernacle with an altar making sacrifices anymore. But the people, the priesthood, on the other hand, is very important for you and I today. You might remember in John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, the time is coming and now is when those who worship the Father worship Him in spirit and in truth. He says very clearly, you don't go to the temple anymore. Rather, each of us are able to worship God wherever we are. But as His people, we are called to be priests. So we have a very personal identification with what Exodus teaches us that a priest is. And that's why we're going to look at this text today. We'll notice two things. God's priests are clothed in very specific clothes and then consecrated. That means they're set apart. That means that they are made holy for service. So clothed and consecrated. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't opened your Bible yet, to turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to notice how they were clothed. So twice our text will say that the priest is clothed for beauty and glory. Look at verse 4 with me of Exodus chapter 28. God is speaking and, and says that they shall make holy garments for the priests. And excuse me, actually beginning in verse 2. He says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, speaking to Moses, for glory and And for beauty. And he describes that they're to collect all kinds of beautiful yarns and beautiful gems, and that all of those gorgeous things will go into the clothing for the priest for glory and beauty. Now, that might sound slightly odd to us because we don't think of men being dressed in clothes as especially glorious or beautiful. You might say the clothes make the man, you might say, oh, he's dressed for success. But we don't think of clothing as doing this. I think maybe the closest way that we can understand what's happening here, the closest analogy we have is actually probably a wedding dress. So when a bride gets dressed for her special day, when she chooses a dress, she wants to choose something so that people notice her. She doesn't want anyone to come to her wedding and leave talking about the dress itself, although they might say a thing or two about it. The dress's job is to point to the bride. And so the dress glorifies the bride. It makes her look good. It makes her look attractive. And so that dress is for glory and for beauty. Here is the key difference God is not having Aaron and the priests dress up for their own glory and beauty. Nobody's supposed to look at Aaron and say, wow. The point of the priestly garments is to point to God's glory and God's beauty. 
The significance of the beauty of these clothings should point us to the reality of how attractive God's glory is. And verse 4 gives us a list of what they were to make. And I'm going to warn you right now, some of this is slightly odd. We'll talk about it. So verse 4 describes the list of what they're to make. God says, these are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. And they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So imagine the costliest type of material, and imagine this in as vivid color as you possibly can. And like I did last week, I would encourage you to read these two chapters verse by verse by yourself. I'm going to point to some verses that will highlight these things for us, but we're going to move quickly through the two chapters here and take these things one by one. So the first thing that's discussed in the text is verse 12, the ephod. And you say, and, and God says, they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And you can imagine this is somewhat like a vest with shoulder pieces. And very importantly, there are two stones in verse 12 that are placed on the shoulder pieces, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. In other words, the ephod is a sort of, a sort of vest with two special stones that have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel carved on them so that Aaron would remember them before the Lord and as a sort of physical prayer so that the people are continually being brought before the Lord. And you might say it like this, that as the high priest approaches God in his priestly ministries, he literally had the weight of the nation on his shoulders when he carried out his duties. One of the applications that I want to make later is that as part of our priestly ministries, we should be bearing the burdens of our nation before the Lord in prayer. And not just our nation, but the entire world and our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of our jobs is to go before the Lord with the cares of other people as a priest. And that's what Aaron is doing. And even his clothing says that. Now the next thing that... that is described is the breast piece. It's not a breast plate, although that might be an easier thing. You might think of armor. You might think of something that someone puts on that's very strong and sturdy. This is actually more like a woven pocket that's about three inches square, so it's about nine square inches, that he would wear right on his chest, right above his heart. And the scripture describes it being made with 12 jewels, each with the name of a tribe of Israel on it. And it's a, it's a sort of pocket and that pocket contains something called the Urim and the Thummim. Now, those are two of the funniest words in all of Scripture. And I would expect that you would immediately wonder, what on earth is an Urim and a Thummim? And I'm going to tell you, we have some ideas, but we don't really know. 
Verse 29 and 30 describes a little bit about what was being done with this sort of pocket, with these stones. And so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before for the Lord regularly. Now, here's a couple things. When we hear judgment, we immediately think of condemnation, usually. But this is not that type of judgment. This is more going to request a sort of wise counsel from someone you respect. So if I were to say, in your judgment, what do you think about this? That's not condemnation. That's asking for wisdom. And that's what's happening here. Aaron goes before the Lord as a high priest with the 12 tribes of Israel on his heart. And these two probably stones are placed inside that. And in very particular context, the high priest would use those stones to discern the will of God. You actually see that most clearly in a few places. I'm going to give you one. I'll give you a reference. You can look this up later if you want. In Numbers chapter 27... Verse 21, Numbers 27, verse 21, Joshua is the guy that gets Moses' job when Moses passes away. You might remember, God says of Moses, when I speak to a prophet, I appear in a vision or in a dream. But with Moses, I speak plainly and I speak face to face. That's the intimacy that Moses enjoys and how close Moses was to God. But Joshua does not enjoy that kind of closeness. When God appoints Joshua as a successor, Numbers 27 21 describes if he has a question and needs to know what the Lord thinks, he is to go to the priest, and the priest is to use the Urim and the Thummim to inquire God's will. If you want to know exactly how that worked, I will tell you. I don't know. Every suggestion that I've ever heard, and there are a number of them, sounds horribly lame and, in a sense, denies that God was at work in speaking in this way. But this is God-ordained. The Bible does not tell us how it works, and I think for very good reason. Because if the Bible told us, we would immediately try to recreate it, and we would try to know God's will rather than meeting him in prayer and getting to know him intimately— we would just treat it like a roll of the dice and we would lose out on the fellowship of God that we have that is infinitely greater. Joshua is one example that shows how this worked with the very limited access to God that even the, the nation's leader that was appointed by God couldn't just go and talk to God. David is another really important example. If you read about David through First and Second Samuel, and especially if you read his Psalms, you would think David is a man who has an amazing intimacy with God. When he prays, you would think that God instantly answered and that he hears directly from God. But if you read David's life, you will see again and again when he wants to know the will of God, he goes and finds a priest. He finds the person who wears this breastpiece 
And he inquires of the Lord, not as someone who is greatly privileged to come into the presence of God, but as someone who comes to God through a priest. Now, critically, if that sounds good to you, that God would speak so plainly that he would say yes or no to your most pressing questions, and I will admit, that sounds pretty good to me too. Let me remind you that you and I have something far greater than this in God's word and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God has invited us to know God personally. We enjoy the kind of access that's actually closer to what Moses had through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in the context of the church and in the word of God. If you just want a yes or no, you don't want to know God. You just want his opinion. But if you seek the fellowship of the Lord, you will discover something far richer and far better. And as you function as a priest, you will have the opportunity to help other people know the will of the Lord as God has revealed it in Scripture and as you have experienced the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me say this. Sometimes, especially if you've been a believer for a short time, it's hard to understand how the Spirit works in your life. And so what I want to say is this. You can and will grow in the ministry of the Holy Spirit as you seek Him in the Word and in prayer. And so if that sounds like something mystical and strange, what I would say to you today is seek to know the Lord first through His Word and learn how to pray. And I believe that you will begin to experience the presence of God in your life more and more, and you will learn to trust his voice. You will know his will as you read it in his word, and the spirit applies you to your life. So the breast piece is so that the priest would, in some circumstances, be able to inquire of the will of God. The next thing that is described is the robe. And in verse 35, it says very clearly, and it, it's a beautiful robe. In the previous verses, it's described as being made in bright colors. It's blue. It also is made without seams so that it wouldn't tear. And on its hem, there are pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And around its hem, there are bells of solid gold. Well, not solid because they're bells. There are bells of gold that would jingle as he walked. You'd be able to hear him as he moved. Almost, I think the only sound that we could associate with this is, is the sound of like Santa Claus. Think of the Salvation Army ringing a bell. Thinking of a guy that's got little bells on his suits. He moves and it tinkles and it sounds kind of just fun. Recognize that for all the sacred, awesome responsibilities that the priest had, he jingled. Recognize that this robe is beautiful and ornate with bells on the bottom, with pomegranates made from blue and purple and scarlet. Those speak of the rich blessings of God, of the fruit of being in fellowship with him. But notice this, verse 35 says this. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, this robe, he has to wear it. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out of it, why? So that he does not die. For all of the beauty of these garments, they were provided so that the high priest could come into the presence of God and not die. Nothing but what God had prescribed would do. You could not consult a fashion expert and say, this is better than what God said. This is the latest fashion. This is the best trend. I look amazing in this. God doesn't care. You had to wear what God prescribed to go into the presence of God or his holiness would destroy you. 
So there's a robe. Then verses 36 to 38 describe the turban that they would have worn on their heads and actually a gold plate that was fashioned to the turban. So he describes this plate first in verse 36. He says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Literally, on the priest's head was engraved holy to the Lord. And because of his holiness, he was able to bear the guilt of other people. And I believe that part of our priestly ministry as people who have been saved if you know the Lord today, is to bring other people before the Lord and to pray for them and to pray for them earnestly. And you do not have a right to come to God because of your own holiness. You have a right to come to God because Jesus' holiness has been put on you. And so you have the privilege of coming before the Father. That's why we pray literally in Jesus' name, because Jesus makes it possible for us to come into the presence of a holy God. And so just as the priest had the word stamped on his head, holy to the Lord, so you and I can appear before the Lord in holiness because of the work of Jesus. The last thing it's described, there are sashes and there are caps for the other priests so that all of the priests are clothed for service. Verses 40 to 43 describes how important it is that they wear these things. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now you may remember Genesis chapter 3. Sin enters the world. God immediately offers Adam and Eve clothing so that their guilt is not obvious. That is exactly what God is doing for his priests here. He says, you must wear this clothing if you come into my presence. This is the second time that they have said, if they come any other way, they will be guilty and they will die. God's holiness is an awesome thing in the middle of Israel. And it is still a sacred and an awesome thing. Yet even this awesome privilege that sounds frightening in some ways was a source of tremendous blessing. But their clothing was actually only part of what made them priests. You couldn't just put this on and run into the Holy of Holies. You had to be part of Aaron's family and you had to be dedicated. You had to be consecrated. You had to be ordained. And there are three things that they did in chapter 29 that prepared them for this ministry. So number one... They were washed. Number two, they were anointed. And number three, there were sacrifices for their ordination. And I'm going to read a section of scripture and just say a few things about it. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 29 describes how this worked. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. 
Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and shall bring them in the basket, and shall bring the bull and two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So we've heard sacrifices, now they're being washed. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons." So there are three aspects of this. The washing. The washing did not take away their sins. It just made them physically clean. They were not to contaminate God's holy things by being physically dirty. They had to be washed. Number two, the anointing. So they were anointed with a special oil. And and this anointing is a kind of physical prayer. It's a sign and a symbol of God's spirit being poured on someone or something. So actually the whole tabernacle is eventually anointed. And what God is saying is my spirit is in this place and my spirit is upon these people for this ministry. Here it sets the priests apart for sacred ministry. Neither of those things would have enabled them to come into the holy presence of God if it hadn't been for the third thing, the sacrificing. Perhaps the most important aspect of their ordination is not only the washing and the anointing, but the reality that through specific sacrifices, they were redeemed so that they could go into the presence of a holy God. Aaron and all of his sons were sinners. They couldn't say, I have a special relationship with God because I've never done anything wrong. That clearly is not true if you have read Exodus. The reality is they were ordained through sacrifices, and this chapter describes specific sacrifices. There are actually three of them. They offered bulls for sin offerings for their sins. They offered rams for burnt offerings that were totally consumed, and they made ordination offerings as they were set apart for ministry. And the ordination offering in particular would have taken blood from the sacrifice and put it on the ear and on the thumb and on the toe of the priest. So the priest is literally covered head to toe symbolically in blood saying his sins are covered and he can now appear before God because the blood has covered his sin. And as part of this sacrifice that may sound heavy-handed, they feasted before the Lord. This is a small token return to Eden. They are able to enjoy the fellowship and the good things of God because of the sacrifice. Now, all of that might sound like a lot, and it is, but all of that shows you who our priest is. And I cannot say everything I want to here, so I would beg you, read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, and be amazed at all Jesus does as our high priest. He has a ministry that is even greater than what is described here. He never offered sacrifices for his sin. He was sinless and was able to go before God on our behalf because he is the sinless Savior. He far surpasses anyone in the Old Testament. Jesus 
is our high priest and offers us incredible promises. So Hebrews chapter 8, for example, shows how Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle and offered himself for us in the Holy of Holies that the earthly tabernacle was modeled after. All of this in Exodus is just a picture of what Jesus does for us in reality in heaven when he offers himself. And his sacrifices are better and permanent and provide forgiveness of sins and eternal redemption. The sacrifices in Exodus had to be made again and again and again again because they could not fix the problem of sin in Israel. But Jesus made one sacrifice and his sacrifice is good forever. Hebrews 8.17 says, God will remember our lawless deeds no more. The God who sees everything, the God who knows everything will forget your sin because of the perfect sacrifice Jesus made. There is no longer need for any offering for sin because of the work of our great high priest. And so as a result, we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. And what does that sprinkling of blood and washing of water sound like? It sounds like you and I are being set up for priestly ministries because of the work of Christ. We don't have to fear coming into the presence of God because our sins have been paid for by the perfect sacrifice of Christ and we are welcomed into a priestly ministry. Hebrews 7.25, speaking of Jesus, says this, He ever lives to intercede. His sacrifice is done, but his priestly ministry is not. He continues to pray for you and I. He rose in power and lives as an intercessor for his people to the Father. That's why the question we looked at this morning says that he is our Redeemer, and he ever lives to intercede as our Redeemer. I believe that when he prays for us, He prays that our faith would not fail. You can see this as an example in the way he prays for Peter right before Peter denied him. You remember, as Jesus is going to the cross, he says, one of you will deny me. Peter says, no, never, not me. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter is not comfortable with that, obviously. He's deeply afraid of failure. And Jesus says this to him. He says, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love the confidence of Jesus' prayer. He's not like, if God manages to somehow save you in spite of your miserable failure, then you should continue to minister. No, he says, when you have turned, because your faith will not fail, because I prayed for you. Jesus prays that in spite of Peter's failure, he would not lose faith. I don't believe Jesus was praying that he wouldn't deny him. Jesus was praying that Peter would not be defeated by the depression and the discouragement that followed his failure. That sifting as wheat that Satan wanted to do in Peter's soul followed the failure, and Jesus' prayer kept him faithful. Peter recognized that God still loved him in spite of his failure. Peter saw his forgiveness And when he preached on the day of Pentecost, he saw thousands come to Christ when he offered the name of Jesus for the same forgiveness of sins that he had experienced. Peter's faith did not fail because Jesus prayed for him. That's what a priest does. And Jesus prays for you and he prays for me in the same way. 
I believe he, Jesus, applies his sacrifice to us. Not that the sacrifice is still being offered. Hebrews says that's, that's done for because it was perfect and complete. But Jesus is still applying that sacrifice to you and I. So when I sin, he says, Philip is trusting in my blood. And my blood has paid for his sin and made him righteous. Jesus doesn't wear a breastplate or an ephod with our names on it before the Father. He has scars on his hands and his feet and his side that show the perfect sacrifice has been made. He is identified with us more deeply than any other priest could. And he represents us more perfectly with the continual reminder of his sacrifice. That sacrifice has been made and there is perpetual remembrance of his ministry as a priest. He represents us to God, not through sacrificing animals, but through his own precious blood. And in that blood, we are washed and we are made holy and we are called to serve the Lord as priests. So in closing today, our priesthood, what do you and I do with this as a result? The scripture reading from Revelation said that Jesus redeemed us so we would function as priests, so that we would worship the Lord. Jesus ever lives to intercede for us, to pray for us in temptation, to comfort us in grief, to establish us in victory. This is what God has done for you, but now you need to recognize this also. If you are a believer in Jesus, you also are a priest. You have a ministry, and this passage in Exodus should help you understand what that is. You also are called to be pure. You are consecrated by the blood of Christ so that you will be holy, and you are clothed in righteousness. God makes the priest holy through sacrifices and anointing. Recognize this. Jesus does not care about your physical clothing, but he cares a lot about how you live. Your life is lived first to the Lord. You should be dedicated to purity. If you remember the blood on the ears and thumbs and the toes of the priest, recognize they were symbolically purifying every part of a priest's body. Head to toe, he belonged to God. And you have the same obligation to purity. You must be pure in what you watch, in what you listen to, in what you do with your hands, and where you go with your feet. Your whole life is a dedicated ministry to the Lord. Your life, Paul says, is an offering and a sacrifice to God. That is your reasonable act of worship. So a priest has a Godward function in his ministry of worship. He is totally dedicated to the Lord in everything he does. But secondly, your purity not only is a sacrifice to God, it represents God to the world, both the believing world in the church and the non-believing world. You ought to be telling others how they can have peace with God and warning them of the danger of God's holiness that is still very real apart from the blood of Christ. You ought to be serving others through priestly ministries. First Peter 2.9 clearly says this. Peter says that he, he has made us a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And the reason he has done that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your job is to proclaim the excellencies of God. A priest represents God to the people and you are to tell people about your awesome God. So let me add this as well. Peter, who says that you are a priest mentions throughout his letter, he assumes that you are praying. He warns twice that sin hinders your prayer. If you are a priest, you ought to be praying. Let me ask you, do you pray? 
Do you pray as a priest? It doesn't matter who you are, if you're young, if you're old. Don't think that only old people pray. Every age, Jesus died for you, his blood covers you, he has made you pure. You need to be building a life of prayer and living a life of holiness so that your sin does not hinder your prayers and your priestly ministry. Remember, Peter, who wrote that letter, who describes us as a kingdom of priests, who urges us to a life of prayer, Peter very personally would have remembered how the prayer of Jesus sustained his faith through the worst failure of his life. And he is urging us to the same kind of ministry. We should be praying the same way. What about offering daily sacrifices? The priests offered continual sacrifices to God. And it might be easy for you and I to think about weekly sacrifices. We might come to the church. We might give. We might sing. Those are good. But priests are called to a life of ministry, a daily act of ministry. In fact, even more than daily, a continual life of service. You are not a priest one day a week. It is your life calling. Hebrews 13, 16 says this, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So I've talked about representing God by speaking of his excellencies, by being a witness for his holiness, by telling people about Jesus' evangelism in a word. I've talked about prayer. Before we leave, I have one more question for you. Let me ask you this. Who are you serving as a priest? Aaron knew exactly who he was serving as a priest because he was surrounded by a nation of people. But you and I, I think, have a harder time with that. And let me say this. If you don't know who you're serving as a priest, you probably aren't serving anyone. In other words, who do you pray for regularly? Do you pray for your family, for your fellow believers? Do you pray for our church? Do you pray for our faith to grow and to be strengthened? We all still wrestle with sin. Do you pray that our faith will not fail? Do you pray that we would have victory over sin? Are you interceding on behalf of your church and on behalf of our community and our world? Do you pray for our church, for our town and our nation? Because if you don't, who is? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, this passage is full of blood. Lord, your holiness is an awesome thing, and I ask that you would grip our hearts so that we are not terrified of you, but we appreciate your awesome splendor, your awesome majesty, your glory. And I ask that you would help us to look to Jesus, to have hope in him as our priest, to have confidence, to know that we can come in your presence. And Lord, may we serve you in faithfulness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.